Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I talk with author and historian Dr. Keisha N. Blaine. Keisha, along with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, edited the brand new collection, 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019. Let me just say, if this book is not already on your radar, it needs to be. We talk today about the work of historians, our ancestors' wildest dreams, and how this ambitious book came to be. The Stacks Book Club pick for February is The New Wilderness by Diane Cook, and we will discuss the book in detail on Wednesday, February 24th with Van Newkirk. If you love this podcast, love being able to discuss books you read with other book lovers and generally believe in supporting the work of artists you love, consider joining the Stacks Pack on Patreon. That's a website that allows you to make a monthly contribution in exchange for perks like our virtual book club, discounts on merch, and shout outs on this show. If this sounds like you, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join. Here are some of the latest members of the Stacks Pack. Brooke Ostrom, Isabel Gray, Beverly Roos, Bryn Perno, Sharon Shebold, Jessica Spomer, Rose Friedland, Shirley, Mary Moser, and Lauren Moynihan. Thank you all for your continued support of my work and of the stacks. Now it's time for you all to hear my conversation with Dr. Keisha N. Blaine. All right, everybody, I am here today with Dr. Keisha Blaine, who is one of the co-editors of 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, 1619 through 2019. Keisha, welcome to The Stacks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm just so excited to talk to you about this book. I had the great idea that I would read the book and then, you know, take like a week or two to kind of read through it slowly and just luxuriate. And then I started it. And three days later, I'd finished it because it's just Unput downable. It, it's just so incredible. So, for the people at home who aren't familiar with the book, can you tell us in about 30 seconds or so about what this book is? Sure. 400 Souls essentially charts 400 years of African American history, uh, beginning in 1619, as you note, and ending in 2019. What's remarkable about it is that we essentially present the history through the voices of 90 Black writers uh, utilizing various genres. And so people will find short pieces, some essays from uh, historians, but also uh, poems. They'll also find creative pieces, personal reflections, uh, just a a very diverse text that captures the beauty of African-American history. It it really is so diverse and so the the voices and the pieces and the kind of the framework of some of them, some of them feel like almost like fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, Maurice, Maurice Carlos Ruffins comes to mind in that, in that. And then some of them feel like essays or um, like memoir, mm-hmm. even like KSA layman's um, which is really impressive. So I guess we should start sort of at the beginning of the idea of this project where did the idea come from? How did you decide to collaborate with Ibram Kendi? Um, sort of what was the genesis of this piece? Sure. Ibram Kendi uh, is a friend of mine, and we've actually been collaborating 
uh, since about 2016. Mm. Uh, initially, we uh, edited a blog together, mm. uh, and we also uh, published together short pieces, op-eds, uh, very early on. And so we had some experience working together, and we worked together well. And so Ibram approached me uh, in 2018 uh, to ask if I'd be interested in working with him on this project. And he was trying to come up with a way to commemorate the anniversary that was approaching the sort of 400-year mark um, of what we describe as uh, the sort of symbolic uh, birth date of Black America. We, we certainly know that uh, there were people of African descent on U.S. soil uh, even before 1619, but, but 1619 is a critical date uh, because uh, of the group of captive Africans who arrived in Jamestown, Virginia. And so uh, as he was really thinking about uh, what it would look like uh, to commemorate this history uh, in 2019, he asked if I would work with him on this project. And of course, I uh, quickly agreed. I, I thought it was important to commemorate uh, the 400th uh, anniversary. Uh, and also what we really wanted to do was present a community history. So we certainly could have, given our, our experience as writers and also our expertise, uh, we could have just collaborated and, and we could have written a book together on the history of Black America. But the idea was, how do you tell it through a community lens? How do you bring people together from different perspectives to tell the history and in so doing, uh, really be a, a a piece of work of history in and of itself, because there's nothing quite like this book. Yeah, I think in the introduction, uh, Ibram references a choir analogy that kind of explains what the book is and that the voices kind of come together and they meld together. And in my reading of it, I felt like this was a quilt, right? That mm -hmm. each section is like a different piece of fabric, but all together, it's this sort of warm blanket that I just wanted to be inside of. And I just felt so, I don't know, overcome when I was reading it and over almost overwhelmed, I think is a good word of my experience. Um, because there's just so much there and having the different voices and lending their insight and their expertise gives it such a richness and a fullness. So I'm glad that that you all decided to do that because it just is such, I mean, not that you're, if the two of you mm -hmm. wrote a history book, it wouldn't be phenomenal. And I would read that cover to cover <laughs> as well, but <laughs> this is just such a unique, special, special piece of work. When you reached out to folks or how did you all reach out to people? Was it, here's a list of names that we think would do a great job and we're just going to reach out to them and give them five years? Or did you all put together some sort of a timeline first saying, these are the things we want to cover? Or did like, I, there's just so much in the book and yes. obviously there's even more history. So I'm curious kind of the organizational process there. Yes, there was a lot of organization, um, a lot of planning. And in fact, uh, once we... Uh, committed to doing the project in 2018, one of the first things we both started to do, uh, just really working off of a Google Doc, uh, Ibram said, you know, go ahead and, and write all the names of the Black writers uh, that you'd like to see in this project, and I'll do the same. Uh, of course, we ended up with far more names <laughs> than we could possibly accommodate, but we started off with just the names of people we recognize as gifted thinkers and intellectuals, uh, gifted writers. And we, we were mindful that, you know, some people would be well-known, others would be lesser known, uh, but it was important for us to just put as many names uh, initially on that Google Doc. And then we started to talk about each person. Okay, well, what could this person write about? So we actually selected uh, the themes uh, and we also identified the time periods uh, for each person uh, in in the process of sort of condensing the list and, and getting it down, to, you know, to actually 90 writers, uh, we ended up having to uh, make changes along the way. So, for example, we we reached out to some writers uh, and we reached out personally. We, we certainly reached out and, and made sure that we connected with people. We, in some cases, even got on, on, on the phone. There were instances where authors said, you know, I received your invitation, but uh, can you talk me through this? Because this is a little <laughs> different. And I said, no problem, and got on the phone. 
and explained uh, our vision. And uh, there were cases where people said, you know, I really want to do this. And I, I love the topic that you're proposing to me, but I'm really nervous about the time period. Mm. I, I don't know much about the 18th century. Uh, and we certainly uh, reassured everyone that we would provide resources, which we did. And so for people who did not have access to primary sources and the kinds of documents that they would need to really be able to tell the stories they wanted to tell, we provided them. Uh, and we worked closely uh, with a research assistant, a grad student uh, by the name of Adam, Adam McNeil, uh, who's at Rutgers, who did a fabulous job of, of making sure just to, to pull the resources uh, you know, just PDFs of older documents and uh, scanned copies of chapters of older books, whatever someone would need, and to hand it to them and to give them clear guidelines and structure and, and also to let them know that we were here to support them along the way. So it became a true collaborative process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you asked about how we we arranged things. We We certainly gave each person a deadline. And what we did uh, to be mindful of not, we certainly did not want to be overwhelmed mm-hmm. with the content. So what we did was we broke it up into sections and we invited uh, section one first and they had their own deadline and then section two, section three, et cetera. So that allowed us to pay attention to uh, a couple of essays at a time and to work through them and know that once we edited the first group of essays, then we knew another set of essays would be coming. So there was a, a constant stream of essays coming in, but we were never overwhelmed with just so much to edit at any given time. Wow. This is sort of like my organization dream because I love organizations. Like all the things I care about is getting things organized in spreadsheets and Google Docs. So you're really speaking <laughs> to my heart right now. Yes. Um, lots of Google Docs. <laughs> I just love it. I just, I feel like I could have worked on this project with you all. I could have, I could have been in that space because sometimes I talk to writers and they're like, we had no plan. And I'm like, what? what do you mean no plan? I love how you say, you know, we pulled together just 90 writers, just a handful, just 90. I mean, right. the scope of this book is just so, the like the mag magnitude, the whole thing. It's hard for me to even wrap my brain around it. And I just got it, you know, the finished thing at the end. So thinking about Mm -hmm. how you all approached it is really exciting and interesting to me. When you reached out to people, obviously some folks are historians and they wrote mm-hmm. pretty straightforward historical essays or, right. or you know history pieces and I'm curious about the folks who wrote things that were more memoir or fiction or create mm-hmm. or not fiction creative nonfiction or mm-hmm. um, those types of pieces uh, Mitchell Jackson's comes to mind in that same kind of that same kind of idea something a little bit more on the creative as opposed to the straightforward how mm-hmm. were you prompting those folks did they like come to you the first time and try to write you a history and you all were like no 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 we want you to write your thing like don't try to be a historian or was it kind of natural that people automatically sort of did that did did different stylized Mm -hmm. pieces yes we made it very clear in the beginning that each writer should approach it the way that felt most comfortable for them Mm. Uh, and as historians of course we we are concerned about accuracy. And so even uh, in those creative pieces, we we were reading with a critical eye just to make sure that what was being expressed was at least close, right? Very close, as close as possible uh, to the actual historical record. And there are moments which, of course, um, and we know this, we we do our best to uncover the histories, but there 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 are many topics that we simply don't know a lot about. Uh, and so, for example, um, I think about Raquel Willis. Uh, she wrote a remarkable essay on queer sexuality, mm. uh, but but came to the topic through the lens of slavery and the period of slavery. Uh, it is certainly a topic that historians have grappled with, but it's hard to find, uh, you know, the kinds of primary sources that would really be able to reveal the sort of inner lives um, of enslaved people and and their ideas about sexuality. And so this was a moment where um, Raquel had to use what was available and also bring a sort of creative lens to it uh, and and, and feel comfortable to imagine. Mm -hmm. And so that piece uh, is certainly capturing the history 
Uh, but we told her, as we told all the other authors, be comfortable, um, be creative, and really do the best that you can to grapple with the theme or the topic or the place or the person uh, and present it in a way that would capture and captivate uh, a typical reader. Yeah, it definitely is captivating for sure. There's also poetry. So every section ends with a poem that covers that 80-year span. And I'm curious about two things about the poetry, which is why did it feel important to you both to include poetry? And also, were the poets assigned the 80-year span and were they Mm -hmm. able to read the essays that were included in that section Mm -hmm. before they wrote? Or was that a preference or you know, I'm just, I'm mm-hmm. curious about how they, because they're not really summations, but they are obviously right. talking about that whole period. So I'm curious how they were prompted. Yes. And so we decided uh, from the very beginning that we wanted to include poets. Uh, and for us, we felt that it was important to try to capture as many genres as possible. And even as we were tallying the people we were inviting, we were, we, you know, we were keeping close eye on the numbers. So we wanted to make sure that we figured we'd end up with more historians in the end, but we wanted to make sure that we had journalists uh, writing. We wanted to make sure we had a couple of philosophers, right? We wanted to make sure we had creative writers. We wanted to make sure that poet that, that poets would be included because we felt like they would be able to convey the history uh, in a different way, uh, but but in a powerful way that would speak to all of the pieces uh, mm. in the collection. And we also mm. thought of the poems as, as sort of breaks for the reader. We imagined that if a person sat down with this huge book and just started reading, um, you know, from the first essay to the second, to the third, to the fourth, to the fifth, by the time you got to the 10th piece, uh, you'd, you'd, you'd be exhausted probably, <laughs> or, you know, and so having a, a poem uh, in between uh, sections was a, re- a way to, uh, take a break, but also to reflect on everything you've just read. And you're absolutely right. We gave uh, each poet a copy of um, every essay that appeared in the section that we assigned to them, which meant that they were able to read those essays closely and then craft an original poem uh, that would be really connecting to all of the themes. And, and as you as you can tell, some poems um, grappled with as many themes as possible. Others focus on one particular theme, but regardless of what approach the poet took, uh, it always uh, they always presented a poem that linked all of the essays intentionally. Yeah, I, the poems were really a night. You're right, a nice break and a nice way to kind of distill down that information and kind mm-hmm. of process it as a reader, just the switch up, you know, it's like when you're sitting at your desk all day, you have to get up and do jumping jacks. It's kind of like that vibe. It kind of shifts everything, right. gets you reset for the next round, which is really lovely. One of the things, I mean, you're a historian, so I'm sure you speak, you're a historian that focuses on African-American history. So I'm sure this is something that you think about all the time. But one of the things that I think will resonate with me about this book forever, as long as I think about it, as long as it's brought these thoughts up for me, is the things that are missing from black history mm-hmm. in America the 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 events the people the moments the feelings the thoughts and this book does a great job of at least highlighting there is so much that we don't know or there's mm-hmm. so much that's missing from American history because as we both know black history is American history period exactly um but i just wonder what I wonder what your thoughts are about the pieces that are missing. I know it comes up a little bit in the section about the marooned people um, who who escaped and kind of created their own communities and mm-hmm. how much about them we don't know. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what what that is for you, someone who focuses your whole life's work on this stuff. Well, in so many ways, it keeps me going because part mm-hmm. of what I do um in my day-to-day work, I certainly teach history and um, love the opportunity to offer courses for students to open up their their, their minds uh, to this rich and dynamic history. So that's one aspect. But the other part of what I do as a professional historian, which I love, and of course, the challenges of COVID-19 have um, made that difficult, but I love going to the archives. I love 
going through these old records to try to uncover these these uh, these narratives that we don't know. Uh, and, and that's something that I think is so important because it's one thing to tell a story um, that others have heard. Even if you tell it a different way, that's one thing. But it's another to tell a brand new story mm-hmm. uh, and one that I think helps to enrich our, our broader understanding of the history. So in as much as I recognize there, there are lots of gaps, I'm actually encouraged um, in my work because it means that I always know you know, there's more to find. There's more that I can uncover. And uh, part of my work as a professional historian is the act of uh, recovery. And so I look for opportunities to unearth these kinds of uh, histories. And I think many of the people who contributed to the volume did that. I I think about someone like um, Harriet Washington. Mm. Uh, She uh, tells the, the story and the, the life story of uh, a doctor by the name of James uh, McClune Smith. And this is someone who, when, when initially when we approached um, Harriet Washington, we, we, we had a different topic in mind. And, and she came back and said, well, actually, would you consider a piece on this individual I'm working on and fits with the time period? And so we said, sure, go ahead and let's see what you come up with. And that essay ended up being... Uh, really an eye opener for me because I had never heard of this individual, huh. even though you know I've studied African American right, history. Right. So I was doing a Google search, like who is she talking about? <laughs> um, and and I just thought this is so great that even as someone who's you know I've spent all these years and committed myself to learning the history, and and certainly I am, and I am an expert in the field, and it was great to find uh, new voices and new stories, and and I saw that in different essays coming, you know, just these new narratives coming through. I think that's remarkable. And I hope that it encourages people to know that there's so much more that we can tell. Yeah. For me, my my experience with the book also was that I kept taking notes of which writers I wanted to revisit more of their, their writing and which pieces from history that I felt like I need to read the whole book on this. I need more on this information. And so that was also sort of cool because it's not the same history. I mean, of course, there are some figures in the book that are at least household names in my household, you know, like Frederick Mm -hmm. Douglass or something like that. But then there are people like you mentioned that I didn't know anything about, or maybe I'd heard their name or, you know, I know I'm familiar with Denmark Vesey, but that Mm -hmm. essay just was so exciting and thrilling and made me want to read so much more about him. And I think that that's something that's so special about the book too, is that it's an invitation for the reader to do more, to find more, to keep uncovering more and that there is more there that you know these stories exist and I just can't imagine for you what it must feel like when you are in the archives and you're working and you discover something like can you talk about what that feels like (laughs) to you I don't even know if you can but I'm just so curious because it sounds like thrilling it is and then of course it leads to a hundred different book ideas and I'm opening up <laughs> new folders and, <laughs> and stressing myself out because I start writing one book and no, I have to write another book and another book and another book. So it's actually, um, it's funny in that sense, but it, it, it is transformative. And uh, just as we we're talking, I was reflecting on um, my earlier book, you set the world on fire. Mm-hmm. And I remember just the experience of going to archives and discovering, you know, one of the women who ended up uh, being, one of the key figures in the book. And there was a sort of surreal moment, I think, as I was reading through the documents, there was a letter that one activist was writing to uh, this woman, maybe Marvin Gordon. And the person said to her, you know, don't be discouraged because, you know, maybe Marvin Gordon was going through a period of, um, I think one might say she was feeling depressed and just disheartened because she was doing all this work and feeling like she did not see the results. And she didn't see the fruits of, of her labor. And so this person said to her, don't be discouraged. You know, the historians of the future will tell your story. And I just Ugh. sat there and I just, I was staring at this um, and didn't even know what to make of it. And I thought, oh my, I am that historian. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and so it was just a powerful moment. And I felt um, just a sense of responsibility and 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 just I knew, I knew that I needed to tell her story and to do the best that I could to tell it well. 
Um, and I just, you know, of course, uh, she's long gone, but I imagine that somewhere uh, that that somehow she knows that uh, historians of the future ended up, in fact, telling her story. And and I hope that um, that people are encouraged, right, by by learning about her. And and so in a similar way, I think when you go into the archives and you begin to uncover these narratives, you it's so transformative. You think about the way that people live their lives and how they they struggled. Uh, you, you you really do connect with 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 these individuals, even though uh, they're long gone and you never get to talk to them um, in, in in person. But in a way, you're communicating by having access to their letters and their you know artifacts. It's it's something remarkable. Yeah, I have chills from that story. Just imagining seeing those words and being like, I'm writing the history. Like it is <laughs> right. me. Which is something, I mean, you sort of, so you write the conclusion of the book and Mm -hmm. I, the conclusion is truly, it is so, I don't even know how to explain it. It is so moving. And obviously, you know, no spoilers or whatever people like, I'm not going to spoil history, but (laughs) your take on our ancestors and that, that idea of us being our ancestors, wildest dreams and sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea that, that maybe that doesn't, maybe we haven't gone far enough yet to quite be right. our wildest dreams, right? Like maybe we we are doing things that our ancestors maybe never dreamed of, but mm-hmm. that there is a greater dream for, for us as Black people in America towards a more full freedom, mm-hmm. towards a more right. encompassing freedom, liberty, you know, the things that our founding fathers allegedly dreamed of for this country, like those things aren't true for many white people. So they definitely aren't true for, for many black people, you know. So I just found I found the conclusion to be, you know, again, another invitation to the reader that there's still work to be done. There's still more to be done. And sort of a call, a call from you and from everyone who contributed to this, to this idea of like, yes, we have made progress, but that our dreams are so much bigger than than progress is there anything that that you want to add to sort of where you approach that conclusion from yeah well one of the things that I'll say is that it's it's sort of interesting the process of writing because I initially wrote one version of the conclusion (laughs) and uh and I shared it and shared it with Abram um and then he responded. He said, "Oh, I, you know, I like this. This is good." And I said, "No, that's not. That's not the, the response <laughs> I'm looking hey, for." Try again. <laughs> and so I was like, "I'm going to go back to the drawing board." Uh, and um, and when I decided to start again, I said, "Okay, um, let me just say what I think is important for readers to hear, uh, especially at the time that I was writing it. Of course, just as many people." being um just dealing with the devastation of mm-hmm. uh, covid-19 and and I started to reflect on the condition um of black america I started just thinking about what it's like um to be a, a black person in the united states and and I'm certainly an optimistic person I'm, I I you know I always talk about progress and I talk about uh, all that we've accomplished I know that there are certain things that I have experienced in my life opportunities that came my way that my mother didn't have that my grandmother didn't have and I'm I'm grateful for that. Um, but I also had to acknowledge that we still have so much work to do and mm-hmm. and so that phrase came to my mind, you know, I am my ancestors wildest dream and I started to to ask myself, but is that really true? Um did my great grandparents uh simply desired that I would obtain a PhD, uh, you know, at Adley school, that's, that's a great thing, mm-hmm. but is that what they wanted or do they actually want full freedom? And do they actually want me to be able to travel freely, to not have to worry about an encounter with a police officer, mm-hmm. um, to not have to, uh, look, um, you know, uh, over my shoulder every time, I'm in certain spaces or, you know, worry that uh, if, if I'm not dressed a certain way or if I don't explain who I am, that, that someone could make assumptions and I could lose my life in, in, in a heartbeat, right? Just in a minute. Uh, and I started just reflecting on all of these things and thought it was important to both acknowledge the progress, 
but be honest about the challenges that remain. Uh, and COVID-19, of course, brought to the surface the disparity um, as it pertains to access to quality health care. Um, and I started thinking about that, plus the challenges that we were dealing with and still dealing with uh, concerning police violence and brutality. And so for me, it was, I didn't want to end on a note where people would feel like just a downer. Mm. You know, I, I didn't want to do that, but I also didn't want to come out of to, to have people leave saying, oh, wow, look, this is a triumphant story. We've made it. Right. <laughs> you know, hooray. Um, right. I wanted some celebration, but some reflection uh, and a recognition that we still have so much work to do. And I'm hoping that by the end of the, by the conclusion, of course, by the end, people feel compelled to do that work. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. All right, we're back. Um, so I have, this is sort of a hypothetical, a very hypothetical for you, but I love a hypothetical. So here we go. If you could have included any writer who's no longer living, whose voice would you have liked to have in this collection? And I'm sure there's many people, but mm -hmm. you know, a, few, a handful that come to mind, I would love to hear. Or, and also if you can think of it, what would you want them to write about? Yeah, so one writer who... Uh, we both, I think, very early uh, in the process wanted to contribute to the volume uh, as Toni Morrison. Mm. And we actually reached out to her. Uh, so we reached out to her 2018 and um, she was enthusiastic about the project, but said she could not commit to writing a piece. And of course, we, we did not know at the time, could not anticipate that the following year, uh, that she would pass away. Uh, 
And I've reflected on that, I think, over the last year or so and have wondered, you know, what if, what if we were able to, mm. to get her to contribute a piece? I think, uh, quite frankly, she's the kind of writer we, we might have said, we just want you to contribute, pick what you want, <laughs> pick the topic that you want to sure. write about. Um, uh, just someone so remarkable and gifted that uh, I think just about any topic that we uh, proposed to her, she would have been able to do miracles with. So um, unfortunately, it, it didn't work out, but I, I, I hold on to the fact that that there was, you know, at least enthusiasm and excitement yeah. uh, and support for the project that that means so much. And, um, you know, yeah. you certainly uh, never know, you know, when you have encounters with people, you never know if it'll be the last. But I, I certainly cherish the fact that we, we did try uh, to yeah. include her in this volume. Oh, that's such a beautiful story. What about the cover? It is so gorgeous. And let me just say to people who have not actually seen the book in person, it is one of those books that it is even more beautiful in person. When it arrived to my home, I opened it and was like, oh my gosh, this is, it's stunning. It has texture. The colors are just, it's one of the most beautiful covers I think I've ever seen. I just love it so much. So I'm curious how you all decided which artists to work with, or if you were even involved in the process. I know sometimes mm -hmm. authors aren't, and it's more from the publisher, but if you were at all, I'm curious about that. Yeah. So we were involved. Um, one of the things that we said very early in the process uh, is of course, we've made it clear that all the writers uh, in the book are black. So, you know, people of African descent, certainly diverse from different backgrounds, but, but we were very clear about that. And when it came to the cover, we said, you know, we would really like to make sure that, that we selected a black artist, which of course meant that we could have, you know, worked with so many remarkable right. people. Uh, and so it was, so that was the mandate, identifying a black artist. And the second was identifying, um, an image, uh, you know, that would truly capture the spirit of community. And so, um, this, of course, I think behind the scenes that, you know, I, I don't know, uh, to how many different kinds of, uh, images, uh, were sort of discussed and explored. But what I do know is that when our editor at One World, um, Chris Jackson emailed us and said, we have a cover to show you, we were both, I think Ibram and I, we were stunned. I mean, I, mm. I think I responded like, I'm, you know, I'm speechless. Like this is remarkable. And, and we were thrilled to know that they were able to identify, um, that they were able to, to select just a remarkable, uh, painting, you know, from a black artist. And, and the spirit of community was very clear. And I think immediately we knew that this was the ideal cover. It was really no, no debate. And uh, I'm really pleased with it. Yeah, it there it, there's everything to be pleased about. I mean, it's just so I didn't write the book and it took my breath away too. So it just it and then the texture when you get it and uh, oh, I just love it. I just love it so much. Um so I'm curious, I mean, you've sort of touched on this, but if you could tell readers of this book and that's like such a broad generalization, but anyone who reads the book, what would you want them to keep in mind while approaching this work? Well, I think um, one of the things that's, that certainly stay with me uh, is the strength and the resilience of Black people in the United States. Mm. And of course, it's, it's, you know, it's one thing to say it, but it, it, it is so clear when you read through these essays and narratives, it just... Uh, you know, there's really nothing quite like it. You know, when you encounter someone like Mariah Stewart, for example, in the 1830s, um, you know, in Boston, mm -hmm. this black woman uh, just speaking boldly, demanding, uh, you know, the rights and the freedom of black people at a moment uh, where uh, millions, right, are still uh, enslaved uh, in, in the South. And she is uh, determined uh, to raise her voice and to 
demand liberation and to do so even recognizing that it's risky right mm-hmm. to 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 say all of this um in the context in which she's speaking so i think about her and just countless others and and the strength and, and resilience just stands out to me and, and quite frankly it's one of the reasons why I, i've dedicated my life to 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 studying and, and researching and teaching black history because it it truly is transformative uh, when you see all that Black people have endured, uh, wow, yeah. it, it really does take your breath away. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about a companion piece to this book that is centers Black women specifically? Is that something that you would ever consider taking on? Yes, I do. Have I know some you have ideas. A, yeah, I know you have a background also, not <laughs> yes, just in African American yes. history, but but uh, women is women's studies and gender and that sort of yes, stuff. Yes, yes, I do have some ideas, and I had just uh, <laughs> threw out some ideas uh, to my agent, so I, so she'll be upset if I share too much. Okay, sorry, um, I just I'm jumping the gun. I'm just ready for the next the next okay. one. Like I just yes, feel like yes, there could yes. be. I feel like this book is the first of its kind, but right. hopefully not the last. Like I just I you know I think about like. Um, the experience of so many different Asian groups in America and mm-hmm. how they're lumped together. But what a fantastic tapestry that could be made with the, di- yeah. you know, with a book that talks directly to, you know, Koreans and Chinese and their experience. Mm-hmm. And then also looking at Pacific Islanders. Like, I just think this book is an invitation. Again, I keep using that word over and mm-hmm. over because it's just, it, it, that's what it feels like to me. But there are so many, you know, there's a, there's a version of this book that could speak to queer folks, right? Like, yeah, that, like yeah. just sort of like how um the Howard Zinn book was the blueprint mm-hmm. for so many other people's histories of the United States, right? Yeah. Like that was the first among many. And that's what this book feels like to me. So let me talk to your agent. I'll tell them I'll buy it. It's <laughs> fine. It's no problem. <laughs> I want to transition a little bit to sort of your process, Keisha, as, mm-hmm. as a creative and how you work, because I'm always obsessed with this. What is your setup like when you are editing a book like this or writing, not so much when you're mm-hmm. going to the archives, but more on your own time. And let's say we're not in a pandemic necessarily. Where are you? How many hours a day are you dedicating to this? Can you listen to music? Mm-hmm. Are you eating snacks and beverages? Do you like <laughs> candles? Are there other rituals around your process? Yeah. So, well, one of the things that I would emphasize is that I write daily. Okay. And this is key because my approach is that you know, if I treat writing the way that I treat other important um, things in my life, then I will always, I think, certainly always be doing it. And so my sense is if I eat every day, I need to write every day. Mm. Um, and writing every day is is quite powerful because from my experience, you know, if you have a break, and, and of course there are moments where you need to take a break, but, but when you have a long break, um, there's sort of there's there's some disruption I think in the process and it's some there's something remarkable about being able to sit down for an hour share your thoughts um, you just put it to paper and then the next day to continue you know where you left off or even to step back and, and rewrite a section that you that you didn't quite get right the day before and so I find the process of daily writing to be so effective and I write in the mornings I just have a hard time writing any other time of the day. It's it's odd, but that's just the way it is. So for me, you know, 5 a.m. sometimes wow. are the moments where I have this great uh, clarity and burst of energy uh, and to music. I, I tend to go through different, you know, different albums. I tend different artists. Uh, it's it's quite funny, but I, I recently finished a book on Fannie Lou Hamer that's coming out uh, later this year. Oh and gosh, I can't wait. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And for some reason, you know, it was Anthony Hamilton. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I was hoping you were going to say it was MC Hammer. I was like, please right, say MC no. Hammer. Please say MC <laughs> <laughs> That would have been nice. Yeah. Uh, but it was just, you know, um, the soothing voice of Anthony Hamilton. Uh, every morning I'm listening and just writing and thinking through Fannie Lou Hamer's ideas uh, and uh, that just worked well for me. So very early, always consistent, every day, seven days a week, always getting something, even if it's just 30 minutes, mm. finding the time, the quiet time 
uh, to, to write has been effective. Uh, and, and recognizing that it's okay to write several pages and then to read it and decide, no, that's not quite what I want to say and starting again. Right. And you skipped my favorite part of this question, which is, are there snacks and beverages involved in your process? So coffee, uh, a bit of an addict, unfortunately, (laughs) uh, a coffee addict. So I've been trying to break the habit, but it just, for some reason, uh, the more I drink coffee, (laughs) the more I write. So I I tend to to drink coffee and and were it not for COVID-19, I would try to find, uh, you know, a couple of days to sit in a coffee shop Mm -hmm. and just love the smell of coffee and, and just being in a space where people are talking uh, and writing and, and just the vibrancy of that space, especially in the mornings, work particularly well. Oh, nice. I love that. Do you remember what sort of stuff you were listening to while you were writing or working on 400 Souls? Oh, um, so just it's funny because I think it, it might have been Ibram's um, earlier reference to this project being like a choir, which mm. just apparently uh, set me on a path to listen to all of these gospel <laughs> choirs. <laughs> and so I was just going through, you know, so Richard Smallwood and his Kyle Walker, you know, his Kyle Walker, like all of these choirs, just, it, it's hilarious to me. Um, I was pulling all of these like old albums that I hadn't listened to in a long time, but somehow it, it seemed to fit because it was just this, this vibrancy of all of these voices coming together uh, and feeling like in a similar way, this is what was unfolding uh, as we were, editing this really remarkable text. Yeah. Okay. You have a PhD. You are an associate professor, correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. And you are Princeton. You are, Mm -hmm. you are a, what I would like to call a very smart human being. So this question is to remind me and people like me who maybe aren't quite as smart as you, that you also are just a normal person. So what is the word that you can never spell correctly on the first try? I need to think through that. I need to think for a bit. Um, oh, gosh. Oh, I can't even think of one. Ugh. Are you an excellent speller? Yes. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, some people are. Like, I myself am a very terrible speller and, like, right. very terrible. Just every time I write anything, I get the red line. And I'm like, that's the. How did I misspell that? <laughs> but some people, I've had a few guests who are just excellent spellers and I feel like maybe you're one that you're just you are just a really truly smart person (laughs) yeah well I guess what is interesting though um is I you know as a writer sometimes um especially if I'm writing quickly I'll end up putting down there you know t-h-e-r-e instead Mm. of the other there (laughs) yeah so maybe maybe that's that's uh one example um which is sort of funny to me and of course when the red line comes up it's clear that I'm using the wrong, the wrong right. there. It's like so a those Twitter kinds bully. Of that's like what Twitter bullies live for is those mistakes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like fodder for Twitter bullies. Yes. Um, and so as I mentioned, as we've mentioned a few times, you're obviously a historian. And we're living in this current moment, I would say. I mean, obviously, yes, history repeats itself. None of this stuff is really new. But then again, there's also a lot that's going on right now that is new. Do you have feelings about what you think as a historian, knowing how historians study and how they go to the archives and what they're looking for and what they're finding, how this moment in American history and, you know, maybe more specifically Black American history will be seen in 5, 10, 50, 400 years? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing that I would say is I do not envy uh, the historians of the future <laughs> who will have to explain any of this. Right. Uh, it will be a challenge. And I think one of the things that I think about, which is interesting, is uh, when it comes to sources, because I study primarily the 20th century. Uh, and that means that there's certainly an abundance of um, primary sources, you know, historical newspapers, oral histories and uh, memoirs and so on. But imagine having to figure out how do you make sense? I mean, how do you even use tweets? Right. I think about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how do you, I just, I, I think that's going to be a difficult um, thing to figure out, you know, going through, uh, Twitter, you know, conversations and trying to contextualize them 
Uh, and and also looking at other forms of social media and the way people express themselves, like memes. Uh, peer- right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so so lots of creative ways to express oneself, and then also having to grapple with the performative aspect of it, yeah. which is to say that people reveal their thoughts, but do they really? Right, mm. or, or do they reveal their thoughts in a way that they would if they wrote a letter uh, to a friend, or if they were. Uh, communicating, um, you know, on the dinner table. So I think about not only um, what, how difficult it will be for historians to to talk about just everything that has taken place. And it, it has just been, a, as you know, of course, very turbulent yeah. past few years. Yes. Uh, so there's that, but also trying to figure out what are the best sources that one should use to capture that history. I suspect that in the future, um, historians will be looking to Black Twitter, of course. Yes. We'll be looking to Black Twitter um, to be able to explain, you know, how uh, Black people are thinking through a number of um, concerns, uh, you know, especially in the context of, uh, the, you know, the, the Trump uh, presidency and, and also the challenges of COVID-19. Yeah. Do you, are you familiar with the Disney animated film Hercules? Somewhat. So, you know, there's the muses and they're the Greek choir and it's like five black Mm -hmm. women. I sort of feel like that's what black Twitter might mean (laughs) in the future. It's like we have to go back and consult because they tell it like it is. They're like, okay, Hercules here. He's totally into Megara. Like, this is what's going on. And if you are just following the regular script, it's like, oh, what's happening? But they're like ahead of everything. They know what's going on. They distill it down. So I'm kind of imagining (laughs) black Twitter as the muses in Hercules. Yeah. Right. it's just I I just wonder so much about, you know, one of the things that people have been saying so much recently about the insurrection that happened in Washington or whatever they want to mm-hmm. call it is that history will judge these people. History will judge these people. <laughs> and I mean, you're a historian. I don't feel like when I was taught history in school, that there was a lot of judging of that many people. So yeah. I'm curious, like, do we think that people will be judged harshly for these behaviors? Like, I you know, and they say history is written by the winners and all of that stuff. So I just one, I just, I'm, I'm so curious. And because mm-hmm. I have you here, I want to make you talk about things that aren't in your book, but are on <laughs> my <okay>. mind. <laughs> well, you know, um, in many ways, it, it alludes to some of the debates that we have um, among ourselves as historians. And one of the things that historians do debate about um is how do you write the history, whether you're supposed to be quote unquote objective. Mm. And so there are many people who will insist that if you are a historian, your job is actually not to take a position. Your job is to simply lay out the facts and say, this is what happened and let the reader make their own uh, determination and uh, let the reader do the own sort of judgment. Uh, of course, I, I'm not one of those people, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I I understand the importance of uh, certainly being factual, and and certainly I always try, you know, strive for accuracy in the way that I tell the history. But what I'm not going to do uh, is present the history uh, and do this sort of both sides kind of narrative. And and thankfully, there are others like me. Uh, I think uh, certainly Ibram is, mm-hmm. is another historian like this. You know, we, we try to be very clear about uh, where we stand. Uh, and I and so I'm hopeful uh, for those kinds of historians mm-hmm. in the future who will say, listen, this is what happened. And in fact, this was an insurrection, right? Because there'll be historians who say, no, no, let's not use the term because, you know, we don't want to make someone feel bad. No, I, I, I think we have to say what it is right. um, and explain uh, because it's important for, I think, um, our children, you know, their children to be able to look back and to read the history and know, yes, this was a violent assault. Uh, this was not something we could talk about lightly as, as a protest. No, it was an insurrection. Uh, and it's, I, I just think as historians, we have to be be true and honest uh but you know we're we're people and we it's okay to bring our our feelings and our emotions right to the work that we do my sense is that that's when we do our best work when we could take a stand uh and bring our critical analytical eye and and bring our skills you know our research skills to the table but don't lose ourselves uh, you know don't right. lose ourselves in the process so so i'm hopeful for historians to take that point of view of course there will always be others who say no no you just say 
what happened and you try not to judge anyone. No, we have to. We actually, I think we have to. Otherwise, we'll make the same mistakes again. Right. Do you feel like the the split on the ideology of how history should be covered comes down to race or gender or politics in any way like is there Mm -hmm. is it mostly like white men who feel that way versus you know black historians or is it not quite so cut and dry Mm -hmm. well I think um broadly speaking what I find is certainly um scholars of color broadly right tend to be the ones who are at the forefront of these kinds of conversations about the need to be clear and to take a stand on mm. a particular issue. And and that's not surprising because I think for us, it, it, it truly is a matter of life and death. So yeah. we can't just talk about police violence in some sort of abstract way. Um, we can, but let's be honest, you know, it, it, it has to be, we have to go deeper than that because we understand that it affects us. It affects our community. It affects our families. Right. And so, I think the point of view, the perspective certainly matters. For someone who feels sort of far removed from the narrative, it's easy to say, no, no, don't be biased. Just don't don't take a stand. Just say what happened. But when you're living in it and, right. and your life is shaped by it, you're like, no, I need to be clear. This is a problem. So I, I think um, for sure that that uh, when we think at least along racial lines, we can see those divides, I'm not suggesting that there aren't, you know, white scholars and white right, historians. Right who will be firm um, in taking a stance. But I, I, I do think that you can see these kinds of patterns across the field, you know, across the field of history, uh, if you look at it through that lens. Yeah. Okay. We're going to wrap up. I just have a f- two more questions for you. One of which is for folks who love 400 Souls, who read it, who are just thrilled by it as I was, what sort of books would you recommend to them? What sort of things, maybe not necessarily the same, obviously we've talked about how this book is so unique, but other books that might be in conversation or other authors that you might point them to? Well, one of the things that's so remarkable about um, 400 Souls is that I would say just about every author uh, that appears in the book has either published a a work uh, already or we'll soon be publishing a book. So, <laughs> yeah. So I think that's encouraging because it means that, you know, if there's a particular essay that simply resonates with the reader, I would say just, you know, quickly look up this person because, so for example, you know, Brandon Bird, uh, who's a historian, uh, wrote an essay um, on the selling of John. And, and so this is in 400 Souls. And uh, he's also the author of a book uh, that I love uh, called The Black Republic. And it's it's about Haiti and the relationship between Haitians and African-Americans, a remarkable text uh, and certainly one that connects to some of the themes that show up in the book. Uh, so in that sense, I think that's what's exciting. And, yeah. and, and it, we did this intentionally, of course, because we were thinking like, OK, if we pique your interest then we want we want you to know that you'll be able to find more. Right. And so um, any author, I think, uh, who readers resonate with, they will be able to find uh, another text either published before or will soon be published that elaborates further on the history. I, I, I've already made quite a list from a lot of these people, so <laughs> I've got my reading cut out for me. All right. This is my last question to you, which is if you could have one person dead or alive read 400 souls, who would you pick? Oh, um, so I will pick a Fannie Lou Hamer. And I told you I've been working on, I just finished a book on her that's coming out. And, and um, I I think about her a lot and I, I I do wonder um, what she would make of 400 souls. I, I certainly hope that uh, she would love it, mm-hmm. but, I, but I do wonder what she would make of it. And, and she's someone of course, who I'm speaking about her as if she's here, but you know what I mean? Just yeah. someone who was very bold and never mince words. So she didn't like something. She would say it. <laughs> and if she thought it was missing something, she would say what it was missing. And so um, I just, I, I think that kind of feedback would be remarkable um, and so, yeah, Fannie Lou Hamer, just, uh, you know, inspiring civil rights activist who went through so much uh, in her lifetime and, 
uh, who fought so vigorously uh, for civil rights, for human rights. I just think it would be remarkable if, if she had a chance to to read this history and to and to know that she played such a key right um, role in shaping that history. Yeah. That to me is, is is something powerful. When does that book come out? Do you know? Yeah, so that book comes out October the fifth. Can we um, pre-order it already? Yes. Yes. Okay, so great. It's I will out. put a link for that in oh, the show perfect. notes. Don't worry. Perfect. So I'll send that to you and that's be compressed. So I'll, I'll send you the link after. Oh it's so exciting. Well, Keisha, again, the book is just, it's beyond any descriptive word I could use. It's incredible. It's magnificent. It's empowering. It's just, it's so, it's beautiful. I'm just so grateful to you and to Ibram Kendi for making this happen because I'm so grateful that this book exists. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to our guest, Keisha Blaine. Thank you also to Stacey Stein for helping coordinate this interview. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for February is The New Wilderness by Diane Cook. We will be joined by Van Newkirk for that discussion on Wednesday, February 24th. Please make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow our social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.